Hello, I'm Arnold Hamilton, editor of the Oklahoma Observer. And I'm Marianne Martin. And this is Observer Cast, your weekly deep dive into Oklahoma politics and policy. Presented by the Mary Lou Lemon Foundation. This is the third of our summer brews and views uh, sessions here. Uh, welcome to Big Brewing Company. Um, and this is, of course, sponsored by the Oklahoma Observer. Uh, I am Marianne Martin. I work and concoct schemes and come up with things with Arnold Hamilton. I'm very honored to be a part of the Oklahoma Observer. Uh, Comforting me as I've comfortable now for 50 months or a month or I'll keep talking. Uh, 55 years now. So, um, and of course, we all hail uh, Frosty Troy, our uh, leader for so many years. And I remember him coming to my middle school and talking, you know, giving talks and stuff like that. So, you know, that's definitely our heritage. And uh, just to kind of revisit what the purpose of Brews and Views was, um, you know, we got together with the um, the board of the Observer, you know, earlier this year, and one, just to be frank, we have to grow the Observer. We have to make sure it lives on. Um, so, how can we kind of spread our message, you know, wide and large in the state of Oklahoma um, as a part of independent media in this state? Uh, I firmly believe in the power and the value of media, you know, the press and journalism um, in any in any political society, and we live in a political society. So. You know, how can we grow the Observer? How can we let it last and help it grow, you know, continue its legacy? But then what we really want to do is kind of showcase the fact that, you know, the, the progressive side of politics in this country, um, you know, we are not a monolith. We do not all adhere to the same ideas, and we don't feel that we need to. Right? That's kind of the hallmark of we are the big umbrella party, the big tent party. We all have a place here and we all have room here. Um, we just don't always agree on how exactly that should happen. And we also think that it's okay that we don't agree, right? Um, so in Roots and Views, we want to showcase, you know, those of us who are, um, we, we, we definitely have a certain, we, we, we think we have a certain, the same end goal in mind. Uh, but sometimes we have different viewpoints on how to get there. And it can be very contentious. Um, so we started the summer with, um, Nick Singer and Paul Shin. What is a progressive fiscal policy? What does that look like? Um, you know, do we tax the top? Do we eat the rich? You know, what do you do? What is that? And then we talked with Jakia Harrison and Aaron Wilder last month about uh, young young people, youth in uh, the Democratic Party, because there are definitely some fault lines there. Um, but we really think thought we would be a myth, a miss, remiss if we did not talk about the attacks on the trans community, the LGBTQ two spirit community in Oklahoma. Um, you know that is uh, unfortunately been such a uh, whipping post for specifically I like to call him Wrecking Ball Ryan Walters. Um, in his tenure as state superintendent, it was a part of his platform to get elected. Um, scaring people across the state that somehow the trans community is out to get our kids. Okay, whatever. But, um, and so, it's, it, but it's not just in Oklahoma. It is a nationwide thing. We see this throughout the country. We see this play out in Washington, D.C. Um, and it has just, we are such a laboratory for all the bad things that happen around the state. I don't know about the two of you, but I can often, like, we are 
where the, these things take seed, right? Like, if it's going to happen here, I mean, and sometimes we get it from Texas, but a lot of times we are kind of the canary in the coal mine of terrible things that come nationwide. Um, and so we, we just couldn't, you know, do something this summer and not include this topic. And we have two fantastic speakers uh, who to talk with us about this. They are very much involved on the front lines with this issue. It's not a passive thing for them whatsoever. Um, but what I, what I think I wanted to do was to start this, you know, kind of set the stage for this and think of, you know, and get us thinking about why gender is such a, such a uh, touch point, a flashpoint for political, uh, for, for, the, for the culture war specifically. Why does it matter? Uh, why does it piss the right off so much um, when we don't play by the rules when it comes to gender? And so I'll just say 20 years ago I started teaching undergrads um, and we would teach cultural history of the mass media and the one thing I would, we would have to talk about things like ideal, ideology in this class and I just said anytime anyone says something is natural but it relates to human behavior that's when you're, you know you're talking about ideology and that's when you know you're talking about power. And gender is very much a gender uh, performance, gender representations, it is exactly where um, the power lies in our society. And I've had a couple conversations with you tonight about white nationalism, right? White Christo-fascism. That is very much tied up with uh, heteronormative portrayals of gender, right? You have a um, white woman and you have a white man and they have their little nuclear family of two to two and a half kids, right? Um, but that, there's a reason why that has so much power and that's the reason why they see any sort of um, presentation of gender that differs from that. Um, is, is so uh, so infuriating to the right. Uh, well, I would say it's not just the right. <laughs> I don't want to say it's just the right. It's not just Republicans. So that's really kind of the baseline for our conversation. It should not surprise you that um, conservatives are wrapped up in maintaining traditional performances of gender. It should not surprise anybody. Um, it is exactly where we would expect it to happen, actually. So race, gender, class, those are the three kind of, you know, the trident of power in society. So um, with that, I'm going to stop talking and turn it over to our guests today. We're so glad they could both be here. This was, um, I think we would have moved it to any time just to have these guests here tonight. They are so influential and so meaningful in their communities that it means a lot that they're here with us. So I welcome Nicole McAfee and Paula Sophia to McBrew and Norman and to the Oklahoma Observer uh, audience. So I'm um, going to ask them to introduce themselves, talk about, talk about themselves for a while, so I'll stop talking about myself. And uh, tell us you know, a little bit about their background. And as we start the Observer cast, always tell us about yourself and tell us what you do. So, Paula, can I start with you? Okay. Yes. Hello, I'm Paula Sophia Schoenauer. Um, I'm a retired Oklahoma City police officer. I transitioned on the job as an Oklahoma City police officer starting in late uh, 2000, November of 2000. And I retired in 2014, so I spent two-thirds of my career transitioning or post-transition. Um, it wasn't, I, I really didn't um, plan on being um, the face of trans people in Oklahoma, which I kind of was like 20 years ago, um, because people really didn't know what the word transgender was. And if, you, if you know Thad Volkman, um, yeah, he was a representative back in the day, and I went to lobby him um, about state question 7-11 that 
um, was the amendment to the Oklahoma State Constitution to uh, declare marriages between you know one man and one woman. And um, he goes, "What are you?" <laughs> Just interrupted my my what I was in, and I said, "I'm not sure what you're talking about." He goes, "No, what are you?" And I said, "I'm." I'm a woman, and he goes, no. And I said, then um, if, if you understand, then I'm a transgender woman. And he goes, what the hell is that? And um, we don't have transgenders in Oklahoma. And um, I said, well, I, I'm here. <laughs> and I can tell you about a bunch of other people who are here and um, that was really um, the reception I got from people like him and Lance Cargill and even some Democrats back, back in the day about, about what's transgender. And then now, um, you know, it's a mainstream word. And in Oklahoma circles, it's mostly a word that um, is, you know, pretty synonymous with uh, a pejorative. Um, and and that's by design. Um, we are convenient targets um, in the culture wars because there is a specific aim that the culture wars have. Um, I have been a reluctant um, person to stand up for myself and it became a national story for a while. Um, and then I embraced it. Um, basically, all during that process, my privacy was stolen from me because, you know, 23 years ago when I came out, um, it was the conventional wisdom was to go stealth. And stealth meant to um, transition and go to a place and live your life and recreate your history. And I thought that's what I had to do at first, but then when that was not a possibility, I, I embraced it and tried to be a spokesperson for people who weren't confident in being seen and acknowledged. Um, as much for myself as for anybody else, um, until around 2010, Brittany Novotny, if you remember her, she ran against Sally Kern in 2010. She stepped into the scene, and then I was really grateful that I wasn't the only face out there. The, the evolution of the movement has really burgeoned since then um, to include a lot of different expressions, a lot of different identities, um, especially um, moving away from a binary concept of gender. Um, and, and people identifying as either gender non-conforming or non-binary, uh, which I celebrate personally, um, because because I've always felt like the binary oppresses people. Um, think if you're a man and you've ever worn a pink shirt to work, or if you're a woman who likes sports and knows football better than her husband and can, you know, it stays in the living room with the guys to watch the game instead of in the kitchen. You know, these kinds of things, they oppress us. 
and and so the binary concept is 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 an oppression for people even who don't identify as being on on the the transgender spectrum uh, or the uh, the I guess the spectrum of gender that is not mainstream. Um, so also is the um, acknowledgement of us as people in 2014, I ran for office. At the same year, Laverne Cox was on the cover of Time Magazine under the headline, Transgender Tipping Point. And then essentially, it really was a tipping point. Um, but later on that year, um, the famous Duggars put out robocalls um, um, portraying um, trans people as uh, predators. Um, to overturn a, uh, a Fayetteville, Arkansas ordinance that included protections for people um, for gender identity and expression. And then late in 2015, it happened in Houston. They recalled an ordinance and then the, um, the right discovered their new cultural wedge, their cultural war wedge. Um, I have been trying to fight against that, to try to, to talk um, and speak to against the stereotypes that they use. I think um, not as successfully as I, I would like. Um, I feel like the Oklahoma City Police Department still does not acknowledge some people, that, that there are people outside the gender um, binary. Um, and, Certainly, the chief doesn't um, doesn't speak like like that is the case, um, and that is a place where I feel like I failed um, because I tried to bring up about change with, from within, and there was resistance, and I feel like um, I don't know if it was on me to really change that, but I tried to be a good officer, a good person, but that wasn't good enough. But um, Around 2017, I became a foster parent. And so I stepped out of the limelight around that time for the sake of my, foster, my, my, my nieces. It was, a, it was a kinship placement. And, um, and I've been just kind of not, not in the forefront as much, but I still work with um, people in the mental health sector. I'm a licensed clinical social worker at this point. And I, I have not all of my clients, not even half my clients, but quite a few of my clients are people who struggle with gender identity. And for the most part, I say they struggle with gender identity. They know who they are when they come to me. What they're struggling with is their families and society's lack of acceptance of who they are. They know who they are by the time they come to me. I just want to emphasize that. By the time someone comes seeking treatment, they, they know. They know who they are, and I can explain some theory about that, but I won't go into that right now. So thank you for um, inviting me to be here. Yeah, super grateful to be here. My name is Nicole McAfee. I use they and she pronouns. Um, I want to just make two notes, too. I am going to be wearing a mask, so if you need me to speak up, feel free to just, like, let me know at any point in time throughout this. Um, I also know that a lot of 
this particular area of advocacy can have words or acronyms that you may not be familiar with. I come from an organizing tradition uh, where we use the jargon giraffe, where if like someone says LGBTQ and you don't know what that means, you can just like stick your hand up as a, like, I need some more explanation around that, and so I will do my best to keep my eyes out if folks need additional explainers on anything that we're talking about. Um, I, in my day job, I'm the executive director of Freedom Oklahoma. I work um, with three other incredible people to do the work of trying to create safety for 2S LGBTQ plus Oklahomans. Um, that is a lot of defensive work in legislative spaces and more and more at the State Board of Education. Um, but it's also a lot of community engagement work to try to figure out where we can create support and build an agenda that actually reflects the needs of our community. Um, I am a non-binary person. Um, I am queer. I'm also autistic. and. Those lived experiences are part of the way that I do this work each day. Um, I think it's important to note that in the current attacks on two-spirit, transgender, and gender non-conforming people, that autistic people and people with a variety of mental health diagnoses, including depression and anxiety, which are also things that I get to live with on a daily basis, um, are having our genders sort of further ignored and dismissed by policymakers by trying to use our mental health diagnoses to suggest that we should not have a say in uh, how we live our lives and what our gender is. Um, I grew up in a small town in South Central Texas. I graduated from a public countywide high school with a class of 14 people. Um, I did FFA. I was not out and I did not know any queer people at all in the town that I grew up in. Um, I went to undergrad at Texas A&M and came to grad school at Oklahoma State. I studied international studies and my goal was to get as far away as possible from the small town I grew up in. Um, I did not think I would find myself in Oklahoma all these years later and both of my parents who were originally from here did not think so either. But I came um, in 2015 after uh, DSCC, DCCC coordinated race in Colorado um, and worked on Cherokee Nation elections. And then I stayed for Cindy Munson's special election where she won her seat in House District 85. And it felt like Oklahoma was a place where people felt that they had to leave in order to survive. And I absolutely understand that. And um, also, have always been stubborn enough to think that maybe there is some space to change that. And so I decided to stay and I worked on campaigns through 2017 before then joining the ACLU of Oklahoma for four years as the Director of Policy and Advocacy. And um, I will have been with Freedom Oklahoma, I guess, two full years as of next week. Um, so that's a little bit about who I am and what I do. So I, I don't want to undersell what you do at Freedom of Nicole, because I mean, they are on top of everything that happens. And before that, you were at the ACLU, and I mean, just the information um, that Nicole and Freedom of Oklahoma provide about what's happening almost in real time, practically, um, is invaluable to kind of an awareness and understanding of just 
um, the pace at which this can happen, the shenanigans that can be pulled to make it happen, um, just all of that. So, um, I mean, really, the both of you, um, just the work that you've done for this state uh, to move it forward just a little bit in this awareness, you know, but, uh, you know, I also have a 16-year-old and a 9-year-old, and they already know all these things, right? So, I mean, <clears throat> As much as we see our leaders try to deny that this stuff exists or that it can happen, my kids very well know, and they, they don't need anyone to tell them except they have TikTok, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's just it's a it's kind of astonishing to me. But I, I just kind of you know I wanted to ask you both what you think the biggest misunderstandings are about um, about this issue. You know, and, and do you think that's really what leads to kind of the vitriol and the hatred, or um, is it just a, you know, a part of the a part of the problem? Nicole, okay. Yeah, I, I can start, um, and I'm sure that I won't hit everything because there are plenty of misunderstandings. Um, I think first and foremost, while a lot of the people driving the hateful rhetoric and policies right now say transgender. Those attacks are very much on the broader two-spirit, transgender, gender non-conforming community, but also on queer people whose gender presentation um, does not conform to traditional expectations of binary gender roles. Um, and so, Especially when I think about misunderstanding around like folks who should be allies in this work, um, is that to be trans also exists only in a binary, and it is only achieved through like medical transition, um, and that not everyone wants to or will medically transition, and their gender is just as valid. Um, that folks can be non-binary; they can be trans men, and still wear femme clothing, that gender expression does not always align with gender identity itself, um, and that is okay, that so much of this is a chance to like explore and celebrate and expand our understanding of gender, um, and that it very much is not a new thing. Um, I think that like one of the biggest things we hear is like, right, that this is new ideology that is spreading new nope. in schools. <laughs> Um, and that trans people have always existed, that they, we may not have always used that word, may not have always had that language, um, but there have always been people, for as long as people have existed, um, who have operated outside of binary gender roles so, and expectations. I think this is a good opportunity to, to talk about what Two-Spirit is. Yeah, um, so Two-Spirit is an indigenous umbrella term um, that was adopted at a gathering of indigenous two-spirit people um, in the early 90s. And it was kind of a convening and space for folks to say that like a lot of the LGBTQ plus labels that exist don't necessarily feel like they also fit within the cultural experience of someone who is outside a gender binary or outside a heteronormative sexual experience um, and also indigenous. And so Two-Spirit was a way to recapture this fact that so many tribes had lost their language around differences in gender and sexuality through colonization 
um, and through the horrors of the boarding school process, especially. Um, so we, in, in our particular acronym that we use at Freedom Oklahoma, we moved to us to the front um, in November of 2021 to acknowledge that Two-Spirit people were here first and have always been here, um, and trying to do a lot of education around that whenever we can. I will also note that not every indigenous person who lives outside the gender binary or outside of a heteronormative sexual experience uses Two-Spirit. Um, that Two-Spirit is not synonymous with transgender or queer, that it can capture a lot of experiences. Um, some folks prefer terms like queer, but Two-Spirit is sort of, I guess, one of the most popular terms currently to capture the broader umbrella of gender and sexuality for indigenous folks. And, and what the historiography will show you is that Two-Spirit um, individuals in their communities, in their tribes, in their nations, were highly regarded, well-respected, holded very valuable positions within their, you know, within their their, their nation. And so it's, it, it wasn't, you know, the, the, this oddity that we treated it as. It was a valued part and an accepted part of the experience of just existing in a community. So I mean, it's 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 a it's a nice, it's a it's a real good way to kind of problematize, to be very grad school about this notion of. Um, a I think, um, too, and I will pass it off to Philosophy in just a moment, but I want to note on the like misunderstanding piece that while I think there are folks pushing anti-trans policy who misunderstand the two-spirit transgender gender non-conforming experience, um, most of my experience is that this is just cruel, and it is purely political, um, and not rooted in that misunderstanding. That most of these legislators and elected officials that we talk to are not advancing these policies because they truly believe the talking points that they are pushing out about it. Um, and that further, a lot of the polling suggests that even Republicans um, across the country don't think that this should be a priority issue that there's a really small group of people who are very loud and unfortunately powerful who have decided that this is the wedge issue uh, that should advance, especially now that we've seen Roe overturned and that folks feel like they've checked off um, abortion restrictions. And, and I, I'm so sorry to keep interrupting, but when you manage to get a bill like that on the floor of the Oklahoma House of Representatives, the Oklahoma Senate, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, you have to vote for it because you know your vote, if you if you don't vote for an anti-trans bill, it, it will go back to your district by those very loud people. So we're, there's just not the courage for it. Yeah, uh, uh, just a note to that end, um, of all of the anti-trans legislation that we have seen, there have only been two Republicans and on two separate bills who have voted against any of the anti-trans legislation. Uh, one of those is Representative Logan Phillips, who lost a seat in a primary, the session immediately afterwards, and he voted against um, the trans sports ban, one of the versions of that bill that moved through the House. Um, the other is Senator John Michael Montgomery, who voted against one of the iterations of a trans health care attack that attacked insurance in particular this year, and he has just uh, stepped down from the Senate, and so that's where we're at on political courage in the Republican practices. Paula, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, Misunderstandings, yeah. One of the things, too, about um, what I understand about Two-Spirit, um, 
in native cultures is that it's not across the board. It depends on the different tribes. Um, I was told by a woman who I know is Lakota Sioux that in her tribe um, that two-spirit people, who they call Mikte, are very revered. But in the Dakota, they're just tolerated. They're not, they're not persecuted or celebrated so much. But, but they're tolerated, and so there's different levels of acceptance. Um, but in general, there's there's quite a long record of um, of, of, of uh, two spirit expressions in native cultures, and arguably, the original persecution of people who were not gender binary is depicted in a painting um, portraying soldiers under the command of Balboa, the conquistador, feeding sodomites to the dogs, which this painting dates back to um, 1517, or, or 1543, I'm sorry. And, and, and I think we all probably know that the imposition of Christianity yeah. in North and South America was very much tied to getting them to conform to gender performances, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. There's a Yeah, I mean, because of the indigenous population, the Hispano population, yeah. it was just 
I mean, same with Utah, right? Like, they're, I mean, just all these things were a part of their ability to be added to the country. So, <laughs> it's not new to the discourse at all. But, anyways, misunderstanding. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's worth talking about because when they talk about, well, this is a new issue. No, it's not. This is Timeless. centuries old. Timeless. At, at least as, as far as the United States as a country goes. Um, a, a, a thing that particularly bothers me, and I have this other obscure book that's no longer in print, uh, written by a, a transsexual woman um, trying to hold on to her, her evangelical faith. And um, she writes a story about having a spiritual crisis in 1980 where she calls into the 700 Club and, and, and talks to Pat Robertson about, um, am I going to go to hell because I'm a transsexual woman? And Pat Robertson, and there's a lengthy quote in this book, um, says, hell, no, you're not going to hell. There's things, and there's biochemical issues going on here. It's not your fault as long as you confess and believe in the Lord, you're saved. That's what he said in 1980. Think about 1980. What's going on in Oklahoma? Baptist Hospital used to have a gender identity clinic. Um, and uh, they, they, uh, my housemate, a uh, trans man, was he participated in their program way back when. And I, I've known a couple of other people personally, um, both of whom have passed on now. This was like a conversion, like well, or to help them transition. Had to help them transition. Okay. Um, where and then um, there's an article in the Oklahoman from that era, um, and Pastor Garrison from um, Oklahoma City's First Baptist Church talks about this is a way to cure homosexuality. And um, what they were talking about were people who were obvious failures as men being referred to this program. And obvious people who were failures as women referred to this program for treatment in a, in, in, in a way to um, enforce the gender binary. Um, people who would go to the program, not just here in Oklahoma, but nationally to these gender identity programs, um, if they were like me when I started off myself being six foot three, very masculine, balding, I would have gotten turned away back in the late 70s and maybe referred for a lobotomy. I, I mean, uh, okay. I mean that's, that's a whole other discussion on just the medicalization and exactly. pathology of this. This is not. No, good. I mean, women are hysterical. Our uteruses left our you know, thing, and they travel around our body, and that's why we went crazy. I mean, it, like they try to explain it away, but they don't ever try and explain away heterosexuality, right? No. Like somehow that's that's natural. But again, like I said, if it's natural, then you know you're in the you know you're in the unnatural. The minute you try and say anything about human, the human world is natural, and it's not. There's so many stories that are not told. Um, 
when I first came out, a, a, a man reached out to me, told me um, that he lived as a woman in the 1980s for seven years until he realized he's a gay man. He went to a Pentecostal church. His pastor said, you're not, you're not really a man. So referred him to this program. And he started down the road of transitioning, taking hormones, and then um, transitioned socially and lived as a woman. And then after seven years, um, he, he decided, no, I'm, I'm not a woman. I'm a gay man. And he claimed his gay male identity and um, lived it out as a gay man. And he told me his story. And I think I actually encountered him um, when he was still living as a woman. I don't know enough of his personal story to say in confidence, but he, he came, you know, we were really good friends for a while, and he was someone who was oppressed in that way. And, and so these, these issues are so complex, and they're so tied together with, with um, sexual orientation and, and, our, and, and who we love and how we live that, um, that the idea that you know, the, L, the LGB is different from the T and the Q and the 2S um, is really not true. So can we talk about pronouns for a second? Because what, what I'm thinking through this conversation is, you know, is it, is, is it perhaps what is so, um, what really, shall I say, triggers um, conservatives is the fact of choosing your own identity, even though it's a response to what's already there, right? Like that fact of choice in creating your identity, right? Opting for what you want your identity to be versus I've, I'm in category A, not category A, a little bit of B, and perhaps B and E, right? Like you're either A or B. That binary, that terrible binary, um, I've written like chapters on it in the dissertation once. Um, you know, is that maybe what is perhaps the biggest problem here, is that as individuals we are exercising agency to define ourselves versus letting ourselves be defined by gender. I don't know. I think that's part of it. Um, and I I think it's always an, like an interesting thing, too, to think about pronouns for cisgender people. Um, and the way that, if you have ever misgendered a cisgender man, right, like, you will know most of the time. Um, I have a friend whose work banned adding pronouns to their emails, and so they changed their name and their email signature um, to their first initial period last name. And the way that people who they work with will go above and beyond not to gender them because they don't know their gender but because there's not pronouns there to let them know, right? Or not a name that they identify as gender um, is, is wild, right? Like it's this experiment that they've embarked on. Um, and I think that like, language has always been something that changes, right? Like words change, definitions change, and also, the singular they has existed for hundreds of years. Um, and that pronouns are sort of used 
as this mechanism to harm folks as much within like progressive spaces as they can be within oppositional spaces. Um, right, that like I work in trying to shift, like I give my pronouns. Um, if I'm in a space with folks I don't know, I like never force people to give their pronouns because I also don't know like where people are in the gender journey. Um, I know that there are a lot of people who think that like my, my non-binary identity is only my pronouns and I get a lot of like, why do you have to be that person? Like why do you have to make it a big deal? Um, but there's such like gender euphoria in having someone see me and my whole gender. Um, and so I think just to say like that the agency piece is a part of it and, and that is rooted in a bigger fear, right? That if you don't know, if you're not supposed to assume someone's pronouns, like what else can you not assume? What else do you have to really engage with the person on a deeper level around? And I think that, um, I mean, the pronouns of bathrooms tend to be some of the first fights we've seen and that Ryan Walters has really jumped on both of those things. Um, and it's also important to note that there's a certain part of liberal spaces that want to use only trans folks that they think still fit in a binary um, when we talk about trans advocacy, that they would leave out trans people who don't fit nicely into a box. Um, and the thing that we know about these laws and policies and the rhetoric around them and the harm that's being directed at people is that it is always going to hurt most the people who don't fit nicely in those boxes, um, whether or not they are trans, right? That if your gender identity is something that someone feels that they can now call into question as you are entering a bathroom, um, that cis women with short haircuts um, and clothing that is deemed masculine are gonna get harassed um, just as much as trans and gender non-conforming folks who don't fit nicely in sort of this this head box of, of normative binary gender presentation. And so I think that like whether it's pronouns and agency, a lot of it is just driven by fear of something different and what it means for power um, when people can expand what it is to exist in the world um, beyond the definitions of what was assigned to them at birth. Thank you. Very good explanation. Um, I, th I think we can't underestimate the evangelical Christian view and uh, the teachings, the biblical, the, the theology of names, okay? Is that you don't get to choose your own name in the Bible. It is, it is, it is, it is given to you by God, for one, or by your Father. And, and it represents your family. And it represents your family. It represents a legacy. It represents claiming. Okay, so so there is this this issue of Abram out of Mesopotamia in the land of Ur being called to the land of Canaan, and upon um, answering that call, is renamed Abraham by God, right? Or Jacob is renamed Israel 
or Jesus, okay, before he is even born, you know, the angel Gabriel pronounces his name like it's given by God. And so we, we, we are not allowed to choose our own identities, much less our own pronouns. Can I just add to that? I mean, just think about how when, when, when you hear the news, someone decided to name their kid Subway because, and just how we think it's so absurd when names do not meet conventions, right? Like, I, I mean, just, so to your point, I mean, it, it's just incredible how much that means. Well, and, and our kids, our kids are named after our family, yeah. you know? I mean, so it, I'm named after family I've never met, but yeah, I mean, so anyways, I, I mean, that's an incredible thing to really think about. Yes, to claim another name is to really untether yourself to a tradition. And, um, to name yourself. To name yourself, which I dare to do. Okay. Um, I didn't change my name much. I was Paul, now I'm Paula. What a difference a name makes. <laughs> but, um, but, and then I, I, and I picked Sophia for my middle name because I thought I could use all the wisdom that I need. You know, I could get. That's, that's a little prayer for me. But, and then pronouns, um, the people who oppress us are not genuine because I'm old enough and I came out long enough to go that there wasn't anything called non-binary and that people in making sure that they did not recognize me as a woman would call me they. As in, a misunderstanding is that trans people have a split personality and that we're two people. If you look up the old article that, I, that um, was written about me in the, in the Sunday Oklahoma in 2004, it says, two lives, two struggles. And I hate that headline. I hated it back then, and I hate it even more now, because I'm not trying to live two lives. I'm trying to live a whole life, a unified life. So I don't deny my history. But they was a, an oppressive pronoun applied to me for years by my colleagues in the Oklahoma City Police Department to tell me, you are outside. But now people want to claim it. Well, what's this stuff, you know? And then, of course, I've taught English composition. And um, one of the things that I never did was count off when uh, my students used singular they. And even my, my lead faculty commented on that, and I said, that's not incorrect common usage. So the, the, way that, the way that the language changes and the, the way that people decide how they're going to use it and what's too hard, I, don't, I just don't believe them. I don't. John? Oh, we met when my wife and I were out on a Sunday morning. Our dog was lost, and you were on patrol, and you came over, and we so helpful and I guess getting the dog back. But my question comment is, is how that you patrolled one of the most dangerous areas during the crack and games here, all the crack houses and all these sorts of things. First of all, you wouldn't have been able to do that and then 
buy a house and live in that neighborhood afterwards if you hadn't been building up trusting relationships. Exactly. And I wonder how many police officers would have dared have the courage to do what you did to buy a house in that area where you had patrolled during such a dangerous time. Not any that I know of. Um, they tried to build incentives to, to have what they call um, a district car for a council, city council districts, ward or ward car, I, I should say. Um, but no one would do it. But I was the first person that decided to live in ward two, and I got a take-home car by benefit of that that was designated as a ward car, and I moved into the Paseo before it was being gentrified. Um, and I, at that point in my life, was not afraid of my neighbors. I was more afraid of my colleagues. <laughs> Truth be known. Um, I, was, I was against the green before I came out, um, I came out, I was in seminary, and I came out against the death penalty uh, in the, uh, around 1997, and I was, was outspoken about it. I was with the Oklahoma Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, I spoke publicly about it. So, um, because I had done a study while I was in seminary, my bishop actually gave me this assignment um, to explore, um, you know, the theological ramifications of the death penalty. So I tried to. I, tried, I learned about community policing. I read about August Vollmer and his ideals of 100 plus years ago. He's a little bit dubious of the character because he also believed in eugenics. Great ideas, flawed man. Okay, but um, I, I wanted to I wanted to try to really become a part of the community that I was serving, um, and I feel like I made connections with people that after I transitioned and I and I was still assigned the same sector, and I think my command thought this would be a disaster. It didn't happen. The disaster didn't happen because the people were like, what's going on with you? And I would tell them and they went, well, you've always been good to us. <laughs> so you reap what you sow. And that just taught me a huge lesson. So thank you for bringing that up, John. I just want to bring up, for, uh, Arnold, wasn't it Forrest that we were talking to that when he was knocking doors in this district in like South Oklahoma City and just this person you never would have expected, like, but you know about the kid down the street, right? Like, just protecting um, a kid, a teenager that they knew to be trans in their community, and I, I don't think this was a registered key at all, but just, you know, take it local. Things might be different than what you expect, right? Oh, um, yeah, it was, um, it, it was one of the most graceful realizations I, I ever had, um, and, um, and some of, the, some of these people stood up for me um, when officers were being awful to me on calls. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so, 
So I, I, I don't want to dismiss, you know, your experience, of course, but I mean, also Nicole has really confronted the ugliness of it this past year. Specifically. So in the few minutes we have left, because um, I don't think I could ever do justice to this topic overall. So, but in the few minutes we have left, um, let's talk about the, the reality of what's happened. We've had executive orders, we've had legislation this year, we've had all sorts of nastiness. Um, you know, give us an overview, and then um, I need, we want the two of you to give us marching orders. What can we do? Yeah. Um, so Oklahoma has always had anti-2S LGBTQ plus policy introduced in the legislature. Some of it has, and some of it has not moved over the years. Right? A lot of it was kind of the big press moments for Republican to like check off their list and call it a day, and they did not always fight super earnestly for it. Um, in the 2020 session, um, we started seeing anti-trans sports bills pop up more and more around the country, and um, they weren't new, um, but they were getting more prolific and more targeted. Um, and we went from a space in 2020 where we could fight on the line of not getting it heard to a space um, in 2021 and 2022 where folks in power decided that it was going to be an inevitability that it would pass. Um, and there was kind of this, this feeling too of like, well, it's just sports, right? Like, just just let the trans folks have sports, and that'll be that. Um, but it never is. Uh, so Oklahoma passed a trans sports ban, um, and ours is unfortunately unique in the country, so it impacts trans athletes um, in public schools and also in public universities, and it requires every parent of a student or students um, in you know, public university sports to sign a gender oath every year um, that you have to say on the record, like, this is my child or my gender assigned at birth and I am not living outside of this gender. Um, that is required in order for you to play sports in Oklahoma. Um, and to march in the band. Yeah, like, I mean, anything OSSAA or whatever, you have to sign this oath that your kid is the gender they say they are. Yeah. Um, so we saw that, and that wasn't it. We saw then sort of an executive order pass after there was press around an ex-gender marker granted through a court process, and the governor learned about ex-gender markers for the first time, it seems, and said, none of this. Uh, there can't be any more ex-gender markers, and that also uh, led from an executive order into legislation that next session um, that banned any gender markers different from male or female sort of assigned by a doctor at birth. Um, and it kind of ramped up from there. We saw legislation that I think started out as like originally as a bill about the boundaries of the Red River, and then became a bill about trying to force counselors to out queer and trans students, and then in the last minute became a ban on 
bathroom access for trans students, um, bathroom and changing room access for trans students at Oklahoma schools. Um, that exist. There are trans students being denied access to bathrooms and changing rooms of the gender um, that is accurate to them, that they live within. Um, there are kids across the state who are maybe only allowed to access a single stall facility in a nurse's office where the nurse leaves at two on Sundays, and so they don't drink anything at school um, and don't eat at school because they're afraid of having to use the bathroom and then being forced into a, a bathroom facility that does not align with their gender and the additional bullying they will get there. Um, and then we saw the fight for healthcare. Um, so I think it's of note too, all of these bills are moving in a lot of different places across the country and Florida and Texas often get credited as sort of the places where the worst of this legislation starts they get the most national media coverage, and unfortunately, um, Oklahoma creates a lot of our own ideas and uh, exports those to other states. And it's so much time on right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All sorts of ideas. Uh, people will be like, oh, Texas just did this thing, and my gosh, we have to watch out for it. And I'm like, unfortunately, Oklahoma did that last session, and we are living through it. Um, but I think in the gender-affirming care space especially, uh, OU Health, and the Roy G. Biff Clinic, which was, until it was shut down by the state and by OU Health with their consent, um, the largest gender-affirming care clinic for youth in the state of Oklahoma. Um, that, like, that, that is the fight we are currently in. So in the fall of 2022, um, special session was convening around ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act dollars, um, and distribution of those funds. And we found out maybe 48 hours before they were going to hear those bills um, that the bill to give money to OU Health um, for Kids Behavioral Health Clinic, um, Stevenson Cancer Center, Dental Clinic, and Medical Records Update. Uh, part of the ARPA funds. Yeah, as part of ARPA funds. Uh, would have a stipulation that in order to receive that funding, they would have to shut down the Roy G. Bev Clinic and stop providing gender-affirming care to Oklahomans under 18. Um, OU Health decided not to fight that. So they told their lobbyists, we would rather take the ARPA funding than fight for our trans patients. Um, it was an administrative decision, not a medical provider decision. The medical providers at OU Health and the Roy G. Bev Clinic did all they could, and most of them no longer work in the state, um, and that is a huge loss for us. It has been an exodus, an exodus of pediatric providers in the state. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I just want to say, I mean, these are, we have a shortage, not only of healthcare providers, but specifically of mental health, psychiatric, psychological, you know, yeah. providers for kids. And I mean, we have an epidemic of kids who need this healthcare, and they are leaving the state in droves. Yeah. Period. Largely because of legislation like this that ties their hands on what they can do for yeah, and I think, um, like just of note in this, so the Roy G. Biff Clinic served a lot of kids and the wait list um, oftentimes was something like six months to get a new appointment. Um, so when the legislature passed this ARPA funding bill with an emergency and OU Health agreed to not fight it in any way, um, there were kids for whom that had been a lifeline, right? Like their parents said, listen, 
you know, if we can wait, wait the six months out, like next week, you've got an appointment finally who had those appointments canceled um, because those doctors could no longer legally provide that care. I, I think we need to talk about what that care is. You know, because I think I think the way Ryan Walters and company ex explicitly have painted is like, oh, these kids come in, and it's kind of like a, a surgery consult, and then the next day they're strapped to a gurney and they get all their you know their reproductive parts strapped out. Like it's just not how it works. Yeah. There, I mean, this is an intensive experience, and I mean, Paula, I think you could, I mean, you could talk to this as well as a therapist. You know, like. This is not just a, oh, hey, what's up, guys? Okay, so what you want to do? Let's do it, you know? Yeah, the way that the legislature talks about this is very different from the reality of what gender-affirming care is. They, it's so important to understand. Yeah, they talk almost only about um, surgeries, uh, yet the bills are never limited to only surgeries. Um, and they talk about, like, as if someone could walk into a facility and get gender-affirming care right away. And we know that there are huge weights. There are not enough care providers. Um, that a lot of folks face additional marginalization at the intersection of other identities, right? Like fat phobia in medical spaces, um, racism in, in medical spaces, lack of insurance um, or changing insurance policies that disrupt how they can get care. Um, and then if we were fighting on our terms instead of on the terms of the folks pushing these agendas, that we would probably fight for the fact that most trans people don't have access to any medical care at all, much less gender-affirming medical care. Um, but gender-affirming care can be as unique as each patient is in terms of what that is. Um, oftentimes, our legislators have talked about like how important it is to wait, right? That they just want these kids to wait. And also, they have then blocked things like puberty blockers, which allow kids to wait um, to make those decisions. Um, I did bring a few copies of a book over here on this table um, that medical providers at the Roy G. Biff Clinic created uh, it is stories of patients and parents of patients um, who underwent gender-affirming care. So if you'd like some more specifics, um, we are trying to get that out in the world as much as we can. Um, but I think it's important to note too that, so the gender-affirming care ban through the ARPA funding passed. Then this session, I think there were 15 total different bills attacking gender-affirming health care. Um, with bans of different ages, uh, what we ultimately saw pass was a ban on care for trans people up to the age of 18. Um, it is currently being challenged in court. There is an agreement with the Attorney General not to enforce it um, until the court has made a decision on whether or not there will be an injunction. Um, and I think like two, two things here, and I'm sorry, I know this so much. Um, one is that the people pushing these policies know that a lot of the harm is just in the threat of them, right? That there are providers leaving the state, that there are trans youth and their parents who can afford to leaving the state, um, that there are facilities who are worried about some of the more expansive policies and what that does to their insurance, and they're saying you can no longer provide this care. Um, so, so much of the threat like, is already happening whether or not these policies pass, um, and especially so long as we don't fight back against them. I'll just say too, like, the statutes are also written to be specific but not specific enough that it's not necessarily clear what's being outlawed and what's not. And so there's so much ambiguity in the statute that doctors really don't, I mean, 
I, I, I would say probably every health entity in the state has policy in place. This is how we're going to handle it. And unfortunately, so much of it has been what OU Health has done. It's like, you know what, we're not going to fight this because there's, and they are such a political entity just because of where their funding comes from. So they, they, they have to, I don't want to say they have to do that, but that's the choice they made. But it's, it's unclear enough to introduce enough ambiguity that we see OBGYNs leaving, uh, that, I mean, we see denial of care for regular services. Yeah. Because they're just not sure what will happen to them. And I think of note, too, that like what we expect in the session ahead is some of those more expansive bills that were heard and did move but didn't make it to the governor's desk um, to, be still the, alive. to be the next things that move. Because it is a carryover session. We expect them to be reintroduced in some ways. And some of those attacks are bans on insurance coverage in the state of Oklahoma, on gender-affirming care for trans people of any age. Um, and expansion of gender-affirming care bans for people up to the age of 25. Um, and I will note too, um, and I know we can go into marching orders in a second, but a thing that I think is super important is that um, this last year when there were bills attacking drag being heard, we saw big communities show up, right? Like queer people, straight people, faith groups, parents, um, drag performers, venue owners, all there, um, and trans people, right? Like trans folks were in, in that fight too. Oftentimes when there were attacks on gender-affirming care, or sort of these anti-trans bills more largely, the people who showed up were trans people, and sometimes their parents. That we did not see community rally around them in the same way. Um, and we saw that at a time where it also came with additional policing and scrutiny for trans folks at the Capitol. So if I walked into the building and I had a trans shirt on, which I often did, like, so that other trans people could be like, that, that is a safe person, um, someone at the security test would say, are there going to be more of you today? Um, when the state of the state... I was going through the metal detectors. <laughs> yeah. When the state of the state happened and trans folks had a rally um, and held a rally outside, uh, had a permit, walked through the front doors through security, and it was reported as an insurrection by right-wing media outlets. Um, we not only had additional highway patrol officers that day, there were plainclothes officers who followed me and the executive director of the ACLU of Oklahoma around um, to listen in on all of our conversations and be near us. We then saw a trans person arrested at the Capitol um, after a gender-affirming care ban moved in the house. Their partner was then arrested at their home, and a lot of media in Oklahoma published their home address in that. Uh, so those folks were pushed out of the smaller town that they lived in, as that was all made public and are experiencing housing insecurity. Um, and all of that came with then increased escalation of policing. So most of the time, if there was an anti-trans bill being heard, they limited the number of seats in a hearing room. Um, they not only put extra troopers on duty and made sure that any of us who they knew as advocacy leaders were followed around by like three plus troopers, uh, they also took up seats in rooms with troopers and security staff at the Capitol. So when we talk about it being increasingly dangerous for trans people, uh, my challenge is always that like just showing up in the building becomes increasingly dangerous. And so if you are not a trans person, 
Like this is the moment that we need you in these fights. Anything to add? One of the things that um, working with people and um, sometimes teenagers and transition age adults from 18 to 25 is that I've I've come to and there's no studies about this that I've found yet. I've looked, but I haven't found anything. Uh, maybe I need to do it myself or try to get someone to do. But anecdotally. I'm finding that people um, who grew up in more accepting environments and were able to express their, their gender identities any way that they like experience less gender dysphoria and are, are telling me um, that they don't really think they need to have surgery that what they want to do is just be themselves. And, but the reason I think that there's so many young people that are, are looking for interventions like, um, like, like hormone blockers and hormone replacement therapy and ultimately surgery is that they just want to be able to fit in and the, our society is imposing upon them a binary. And if they want to have any kind of privacy if they want to experience any kind of personal success, whether in education settings, employment settings, dating and interpersonal relations, that they have to go the full way. Um, so in the meantime, when these, these law, as these laws are being passed, is, is um, you know, accepting our children for who they are, as they are. Um, if it's a phase, it'll be obvious since it's a phase, but usually it's not a phase if, if it comes down to gender identity. And I encourage you to read some stuff on Lawrence Colbert's um, gender identity um, theory. Um, I don't want to go all the way into it because it's, in, it's the end of time. <laughs> but it, it's, not com it's not completely accepted, but it rings true from my experience. But, but, um, but the more we impose binary thinking and binary roles and behaviors on our children, the more gender dysphoric they, the more gender dysphoria they, they experience. And, and then by the time that they're teenagers or young adults, it, it's, it's coming to a crisis. And the interventions are a lot more invasive. So I, I just let our children be who they are and, and, and stand up for our children instead of putting them in little boxes on who and how they need to be, um, which is very difficult for our religious right um, leading folks here in, in this because they want definite firm boxes that everybody goes into. They even have classes on how to model young men and how to model young women and, make, and including how to dress and how to use makeup and, and, and everything and, they, and it's, it's very strict um, and, and that is what's causing gender dysphoria for so many of our, our, our young people so just leave it at that. I wish I could say I was like uplifted but my heart's very heavy because I know you know 
I, I mean, just the research is there showing the impact of gender dysphoria and lack of recognition on that in society. I mean, su suicidality rates, you know, suicide ideation goes up when you're in these when children are in these situations where they are not recognized, acknowledged, and accepted. Um, and that is the culture we're creating here. Uh, I'll write just a minute. And that is what we're creating in the state of Oklahoma, is we're increasing the odds for suicide of our kids. And, but it just, I mean, my heart is very heavy knowing that this is the reality, you know, that, that these are our kids. So, um, any questions you see? Yes, ma'am. Well, I've heard that the medical records are going to be, maybe I have the wrong description, but that the state or the insurance commission is now going to require social workers and other counselors to put their records out there? So, so that came up for a while this year where... Um, the health information exchange. Yeah, it, yes. Um, and in Tennessee, the, they were turning over records, health records of uh, trans patients. Uh, the federal government has a word, had, wants a word about that, though, because that is very much a HIPAA violation. Um, so I don't think that's settled yet, and that didn't actually happen with the health information exchanges here in the state, correct? Like, it's it still, was a thing. Being debated, yeah, it was a thing. Being. It was very much a concern, um, and it wasn't. It wasn't just for this issue alone. It was all mental health patients in general. Uh, their their records were at, were supposedly having to be opened up into this health information exchange, the confidentiality, privacy. Um, all of that was in question. Um, mental health providers like, uh, excuse me, and it's not yet happening. Yeah, there is a. Yeah, that's I, I personally have um, clients who have insurance but won't don't want to use insurance because they don't want me to take notes. Yep. Yeah. I was just going to say there is a, a coalition of um, mental health providers who organized around that and who have done continued advocacy um, on trying to keep an eye on what the final language in the health information exchange requirements are. My money will say the rules will be messed up somehow because they, they do, but it doesn't mean it won't have harm. Um, but just the, the, the whole, sorry, that's my very cynical take on it. Find it interesting. They're not very good at it. But the people who are pushing the health information exchange, which is more invasive than the Affordable Care Act ever was. I mean, and, and for those who don't know, like, I feel like we need to define this. It's like this, basically this big database, and it's for the move towards managed care, and so that they can identify who needs, um, who needs like, uh, who has like high health needs, and they can be managed. I'm, I'm losing my language on this, but I mean, it, it's behind the value-based versus fee-for-service or blah, 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 this big push, but it then opens up, you know, our confidential privileged information going to insurers in ways that we don't quite know how it's going to be used and so it makes our you know vulnerable communities even more vulnerable than they already are at the hands of the government so <laughs> um yeah it'll oh, gosh i hadn't thought about that one in a while so i think just in that like to end on some some actionable notes uh, because i often need that after digging into 
the harms that we're facing. Um, I'll note that Freedom Oklahoma does an annual conference um, with both satellite locations and um, a sort of full-day virtual conference. This year it is Saturday, August 26th, and the theme is Allyship in Action. Um, it is free to attend. You can go to Freedom Oklahoma's website and social media to find the registration links for that. Um, but I think it will be a whole day kind of dedicated to how you can continue to dig into this work. Um, we are seeing just a proliferation of these policy fights across the state at different levels of governance, right? That Brian Walters is being loud and out front at the State Board of Education, but we are also seeing spikes at a lot of local school boards and with hundreds of individual school boards in the state, most of which like don't stream their meetings, like don't have any consistency in website, how they post agendas, um, it can be hard to follow along. So if you have a local school board where you can start showing up to those meetings, because the Moms for Liberty folks are probably already there, um, being just a, a watchful eye and ear on the ground and being able to like flag for community um, if there are attacks coming at a more local level it is super helpful. Um, I also just like, the closer you can get money to the people most directly impacted and like mutual aid especially is so important right now. There are a lot of trans folks trying to leave who don't have the resources to leave um, or trying to survive here who don't have the resources to survive here. Um, Red Dirt Collective in Norman does a great job of, yeah. of um, lots of mutual aid projects. Um, and I'll, like my final push um, is that the people out in front um, fighting on these issues, like it is heavy and it is personal and it can often feel really lonely, even from the people who are supposed to be our allies. That people like want to show up and take up space in quiet spaces and spaces where there's queer and trans joy and they feel like it's just a real bummer to show up um, in the moments of trans and queer pain um, and, and don't make an effort to be in those spaces a lot. And so sometimes we need to do that see in our own like big tent community um, that when we had trans folks arrested and harassed by law enforcement at the Capitol this year, Rep. Maury Turner was the only person who showed up for the rights of folks um, when faced with police questioning without an arrest. Um, and while other legislators were in the building and got calls um, threatening Rep. Turner from Republican leadership, not a single one of them showed up to check in on the trans people who were trying to figure out how to get a trans person out of the Oklahoma County Jail, one of the deadliest jails in the country. Um, none of them showed up to just check in as State troopers were trying to intimidate um, someone into uh, speaking to them without an attorney and without being under arrest. No one showed up just to check in. I'll just bring up to you, uh, Rep. Turner was on uh, our committee, our first session, um, that was like kind of an innocuous committee that landed a couple anti-trans bills out of the blue, and it was stunning in the way that they were kind of singled out that way and heartbreaking at how little response there was by the caucus in the city park. Yeah. So, yeah, Tom, do you have something? You all are good talkers. We love you all. Are we running late? I agree with you. Okay. <laughs> went back to a general sense, so I think the whole uh, world of education has always been the focus of 
quote of criticism. And I think part of the problem with people that consider themselves intelligent and even intellectuals, I think they need to be more gentle when they're talking to people about education. Instead of taking an I and my reproach, because that's not getting us anywhere. Give us an example of what you mean. Like, do you think you were being a little harsh, or other people? Just curious. Just what we're talking about. So many people in the world over, they just they just refuse to be educated. But I think that it's not their problem. I think it's the problem of the rest of us. I want to I want to close on this. Is I think of the three of us up here. You know. Young workers and workers and stuff, but you know the folks here. We will, I mean, we would love to see you go to bat for these things as well. And I know you have like when as record ball Ryan came to Norman for the county GOP party, right? Like, every, we were all wringing his neck, <laughs> proverbially speaking. But I mean, it, it can't just be, it can't just be, you know, young kids, you know, going after people. And so, and and I'll be frank, I'm kind of disappointed by who's here, not here tonight, you know. So, uh, noted. <laughs> I, I noted. Oh, no, no, I know, I know. Um, but I, I appreciate that comment because we have to find ways that can bring us all together, you know, as an ally friend. Not insulting. Right, right. And, you know, so we can be actionable and we can make change. I mean, that's ultimately what we want. So, I want to thank both of you for coming here tonight. Um, one conversation is not enough. And I don't feel like I did it justice at all. So thank you for your sharing, for telling us your points of view. Um, and thank you everyone for coming. And what we always do before we leave is we've got a cheers and toast to Frosty Troy and his memory, his impact. Uh, we got to keep it going, y'all. So thank you very much. Uh, we'll keep you updated on future news and news to come. So have a good night. Thank you for listening to this episode of ObserverCast. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and share our episodes far and wide on social media. If you're interested in sponsoring ObserverCast, please give Arnold Hamilton a call at 405-478-8700 or drop him an email at ahamilton at okobserver.org. You can also support ObserverCast with a tax-deductible donation to the Oklahoma Observer Democracy Foundation, whose mission is to help create a better, more informed Oklahoma. And to help keep us on the air, visit okobserver.org and click on the Donate button on the upper right side of the homepage. We also urge you to subscribe to the Oklahoma Observer, now in its 55th year of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. We have a special digital subscription rate for ObserverCast listeners, only $1.99 a month for the first year. That's 50% off the usual rate for monthly digital subscribers. Just use the coupon code ObserverCast when checking out to get the discount rate. And finally, we want to thank Jared Deck for the music you're listening to in the background here. He's not just a resident of Norman anymore. He is now the Oklahoma State Representative for House District 44. Congratulations, Representative Deck. We're so proud of you. But you can still download his albums at iTunes and learn more, including dates for any upcoming performances at jareddeathmusic.com.